Well, good morning, Convergent Church. It's so great to be gathered with you guys. Again, if you're joining us for your first time, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors and planters here at Convergent Church. And at Convergent Church, our mission is very simple. Our mission is that we exist to connect the people of Owasso to Christ, to Christ's kingdom, and to community. So let me break this down for you. If you don't know Jesus, we want you to meet Jesus today. Jesus is the only remedy for the brokenness that is inside of us and the brokenness that we see outside of us in the world around us. And if you don't yet belong to his kingdom, we want you to belong to his kingdom because this earth is wasting away with each day that goes by. It's transient. But God is building a kingdom that is eternal. And we want to be for you a place of community. We want to be a church where you can be loved, where you can struggle, where we can suffer together, where we can celebrate one another's victories together. So again, we just want to welcome you to this place this morning. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through 1 John titled, Our Joy Complete. Now, last week, we examined 1 John 5, 1 through 5, which ended in this way. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in the Son of God? And today we're going to see in verses 6 through 13, uh, where John explains in greater detail this Jesus, the Son of God, that we must believe on in order to overcome the world. And in this text, we're going to see John make his case. He presents evidence so that we can have assurance. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, assurance about what? Assurance that Jesus really is the Son of God and assurance that we have eternal life through him. That when our time is up here on earth, that we will go to heaven to be with him forevermore. It is the assurance that we have overcome the world. Again, verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes Jesus is the Son of God? This is where the journey begins, and it's one of the most important questions that we could ever ask, and that is this. Who is Jesus? And the answer to that varies greatly depending on who you're talking to. There are many different versions of Jesus in the various world religions. For instance, in Judaism, we learn that he was Mary's son, that he was a teacher, that he had disciples, that he was respected, that he worked miracles, that he claimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified on a cross, and his people claimed that he rose from the dead. That's what Judaism believes. Islam says Jesus was born of a virgin. He's to be revered. He is a prophet. He was a teacher. He worked miracles. He ascended and went to heaven. Hinduism says that Jesus was a holy man, that he was a good teacher, that he is one of, God, one of many gods, that he is divine but not uniquely divine. And Buddhism says that he was an enlightened man. He was an enlightened man because he lived a sacrificial life and had compassion on those who were in need. They also said that he was a wise teacher and that he was a holy man. Now, for a moment, I want you to consider people in your own life. When discussing a biblical topic, 
When discussing a biblical topic, has someone ever said to you, well, my Jesus would never insert the blank. My Jesus would never send people to hell. My Jesus would never judge people. My Jesus would never say that this is a sin or that that is a sin. And there's nothing new under the sun. Since the dawn of creation, mankind has fashioned gods in their own image and to their own liking. And it was no different in the first century when John penned this letter of 1 John. Earlier in the letter, we learned that John wrote this letter to the early church to correct the teachings of those whom he referred to as the secessionists. They were a group of people that were once a part of the true church, but began teaching and believing false doctrines. They then separated from the church, but their false teachings were still infiltrating the church, and it was causing great division amongst the believers. So while the the secessionists claimed to know the one true God, they also claimed to be sinless. And that's contradictory to Scripture, right? They also denied that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God, come in the flesh to take away the sins of the world. And most importantly, they, they rejected Jesus' atoning death for sin. In a nutshell, they believed that Jesus was just a good guy. They believed he was a good guy who the Christ ascended upon at his baptism, who empowered him to do these miracles and these miraculous signs, but then who departed from him in the garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross to die. That is to say, the secessionists believed he was born a regular man, not God, and died a regular man, not God. They fashioned a version of Jesus to their own liking while rejecting the the truth and in turn rejecting the one true Jesus. And here's the major problem. The secessionists, along with all the world religions that I mentioned, testify that Jesus was a good guy, a wise teacher even, a holy man. Some even declared him to be a prophet. Yet Jesus declared that he was God. Come in the flesh to take away the sin of the world. Even more than this, Jesus said what? He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So if Jesus isn't God, that would make him a liar, and liars are not good people. They are not wise teachers, and they are certainly not holy. They are false teachers to be disregarded. And last week, John, uh, in our text, explained that there is but one way to, to overcome the world and then to obtain this eternal life, and that's through our belief in the Jesus of the Bible. So it's of the utmost importance that we are believing on the true Jesus. It's literally a matter of life and death. There's only one true Jesus who eternal life comes through. And in our text this morning, we will see John describe in greater detail this true Jesus, the Son of God, that we may believe in him, that we would have life, and that based on the evidence presented, that we would have assurance, that we would know with certainty to whom we belong to and to where we are going after we die. There was once a man named Bertrand Russell. He lived in the uh, the early 1900s to the mid-1900s. And he was a well-known atheistic philosopher who wrote over a hundred books. He wrote an autobiography that was three volumes long about himself. He was the receiver of the Nobel Prize of Literature in 1960. One of his best-selling books was titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. 
And on one occasion, someone asked him, someone asked him, what if you were wrong? What if you die and you stand face to face with the God of the universe? And he said, I would probably ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? So this morning, we're going to examine some evidence, and we will determine together whether or not the evidence is sufficient. But before we go any further, let's first begin with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can come into your presence now, that we are not singing, that we're not speaking of a dead God or a dormant God or a distant God, but the God who meets with us here and now in this place. So God, as your word is opened, would you soften our hearts? Would you open deaf ears to hear? Would you open blind eyes to see the truth and the reality of who you are? And that as we leave this place today, that we wouldn't leave saying what great people or what great music or what a cool space, but we'd be saying what a great Savior we have in Jesus, the Son of God, come from heaven to make a way for us. So we pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5. And today we're going to be hanging out in verses 6 through 13. And in verse 6 we read, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for, there, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life and this life in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So by the time that we work through all this text this morning, we're going to see that John uses the word testify or testimony ten times. And it's the same Greek word for all of them. And where do we testify? Where do we hear eyewitness testimonies? In the court of law. John was an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he was the last living apostle. And in the text, we see him testify that there is abundant evidence that the biblical Jesus is the Son of God. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to picture a courtroom. And in this courtroom, there are three witnesses, and we see them in in verses 6 through 8. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. John says that these three testify, and they, they are all in agreement, that Jesus is the Son of God, come from heaven. But if you're like me, upon first reading this, uh, you're probably like, I did not get that. The, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And if you're feeling that way, that's okay. Over the course of the last 2,000 years, over the course of the church age, people have differed in their interpretation of what 
this text actually means, in particular when it pertains to the, the water in the blood. So some have said that uh, the water signifies the amniotic fluid when Jesus was born. Others say that the blood is the blood that he shed on the cross. But yet others have believed that this is a, a reference to the sacraments, to baptism, water, and the Lord's Supper, blood. And still others have believed that it was referring to the water and the blood that rushed out of his side when the Roman soldier pierced him with the spear to ensure that he was dead. And, and out of his side came water and blood. But the oldest interpretation, and I believe the correct interpretation, came from a defender of the faith uh, named Tertullian who lived from AD 160 to 220. And he taught that the water signified Christ's baptism and that the blood signified his death on the cross. And just as a general rule, whenever you're studying the Bible, the oldest interpretation is probably the correct one. So, and also, context is key, right? So what is John writing his letter to combat? John is writing to the early church to correct the false teachings of the secessionist group whose teachings were infiltrating the church. And what did the secessionists believe about Jesus? They believed that he was an ordinary man, and at his baptism, the Christ came upon him and then left him in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. Thus, they would teach that Jesus was not the one and only Son of God who died to take away the sins of the world. So in light of this, looking at this context, how fitting is it that John would begin verse 6 in this way? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Again, because this group taught that, yeah, he came through the water, but then the Christ left him before he was crucified. So to help us gain a better understanding of this, I want to spend some time examining our three witnesses today of the spirit and the water and the blood. It's no coincidence that John would call to the stand three witnesses because here's what the word of God says. Here's what the law of God says in Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So in God's law, one witness is considered altogether insufficient. Why? Because people lie, Right? How many people in America have spent years on death row based on a single false testimony only to be exonerated by, by DNA, essentially a second witness? So to ensure that perfect justice is being executed, God requires that two or three witnesses be present who can testify, who can substantiate the claims that are being made against or in support of an individual. It makes sense then that John would call on three witnesses to testify to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, come from heaven. Because the secessionists were putting the biblical, the historical Jesus on trial. So let's examine our witnesses. Witness number one, the Holy Spirit. Verse seven. Uh, sorry, verse six. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. John begins by explaining that the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, testifies to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. 
But more than this, he states that the very reason that the Spirit is the one who testifies is because the Spirit is truth. All truth finds its root in God. In John 15, 24, Jesus said this about his Spirit. He said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We see here that the Holy Spirit's job is to testify about Jesus. And he does this in two ways. The first way that the, that the Holy Spirit testifies is in our hearts. His job is to point us to Jesus, to lead us to Jesus, to bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. To regenerate us, that is to soften our hearts that have been hardened by our own sin and to cause us to believe on Jesus. The Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts. He bears witness to this truth that Jesus is the Son of God come from heaven to take away the sins of the world. And in John 16, 13 through 14, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever authority he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for I will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that uh, also ties into the second way that the Spirit testifies. And that is that the Spirit testifies through the Scriptures. He testifies to our hearts. He testifies through the Scriptures. Think about it. How did we get the Bible? Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And all Scripture is what? It's God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in right, righteousness. The Holy Spirit testifies to us through the Scriptures. As an example of this, I'd like for us just for a moment to consider a few Old Testament prophecies. These prophecies were spoken literally centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth. And the, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke in great length about how the nation of Israel uh, would know that the Christ had come that the Son of God had come to the world to save his people from their sin. And I'm going to highlight just very briefly a few of them because as much as I love to, we just don't have time <laughs> to dig into all of them. So uh, I'm, I'm going to encourage you, write these references down, uh, go back to them later, examine it for yourself. But the first thing we see is over 700 years before the Son of God came to earth, Isaiah prophesied that he would be born of a virgin. That's in Isaiah 7:14, that the Lord himself would give the people a sign that the Christ had come. And it would be that a virgin would give birth to a son. Not your everyday occurrence, right? And in Matthew 1:18-25, we see Mary, a virgin, conceived and gave birth to a son. Now we could also look to the, the betrayal of Jesus. Zechariah 11. 12 through 13 speaks of the Christ being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And in Matthew 26, 14, it tells us that then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. We also see that he was pierced for our transgressions. In Isaiah 
53, we see one of the most vivid prophecies concerning the coming Christ. It speaks of him being despised and rejected. It describes him as having carried our griefs and sorrows all the while being beaten. And in verse 5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in Matthew 27, we see Jesus being rejected by his own people when given the choice of, of choosing to free Jesus, the sinless son of God, or Barabbas, who was a murderer. And they chose Barabbas. They rejected him. And we see that Jesus was beaten in our place and ultimately that he was pierced for our transgressions. They took and placed a crown of thorns upon his head and they hammered it into his head. They nailed his wrists and his feet to the cross. And after hanging on the cross, they jabbed the spear into his side to ensure that he was dead. He was pierced for our transgressions on the cross. Jesus the Son of God bore the iniquity of us all to bring about the forgiveness of our sin. We also see that uh, it was prophesied that he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Later on in Isaiah 53, in verse 9, again, this is 700 years before Jesus even walked the face of the earth. It was prophesied that the Christ would be placed in a rich man's tomb after his death. And in Matthew 27, 57 through 60, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And these four, par or these four examples, these four prophecies, they don't even scratch the surface because there are well over a hundred obvious, clear prophecies regarding the, the Christ that was to come in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled all of them to a T. He substantiated that he was the one true God through the testimony of the Spirit in the Scriptures. So by way of application here, we see that the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts and through the Scriptures that Jesus is the Son of God come from heaven to take away the sin of the world. And if you haven't experienced the witness of the Holy Spirit for yourself, man, I would just encourage you even just right now just to stop and to pray. Pray that he would help you to see Jesus even in this moment as we examine the scriptures for who he really is. Pray that he would give you faith to see and believe these truths. If you don't have a Bible, I will give you a Bible Let's study it together. Let's pray that God would, by his spirit, help us to see who he really is through the scriptures, that he would give us faith to see and to believe on these truths. I promise, I promise that prayer will not return void. Because the word of God says this, it says, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He also said in Romans 10, 13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if, if you've experienced this, if you've believed on the testimony of the Spirit in your heart as revealed in the, in the Scriptures, this is your assurance. 
May this be to you assurance that you know the true Jesus, that you belong to his kingdom, that you have inherited eternal life. But again, this is just one witness. And God's law necessitates two or three witnesses. So let's examine witness number two. These three testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. The water. This is speaking to Jesus' baptism. Again, the water is a reference to the baptism. The events that took place there in those waters testify to you and I that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's read the account uh, together in John 1, 26 through 34. And a little, a little context here is that John the Baptist, who is a different John than the author of this book, was being questioned as to why he was baptizing people. People began to inquire if he himself was the Christ. And here's what John said. He said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John was out there baptizing as God had called him to do, and he sees Jesus coming towards him. And he declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he references Jesus ranking before him because he was before him. This is alluding to the fact that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. Not a regular man that was born and became God. He was the eternal Son of God who existed before John, who existed in eternity past and had come down from heaven. We're, giving further in, we're, uh, we're also given further insight into what happened in those waters in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. And I apologize, we're, we're burning through Scripture this morning, but my hope is that God would use this word to bear witness to your heart, that he would testify through, through these pages and that you would see that Jesus is the Son of God. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened before him and he saw the spirit descending down like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So God commissions John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Son of God to come. And God told him, Whoever you see the Spirit descend upon and rest upon, this is the Son of God. And it, and it happened. Jesus came and was baptized by John. 
And as he came up out of the waters, the skies literally opened up. And the Spirit of God came down and rested upon him. And the audible voice of God spoke and said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The, the water, the events of Jesus' baptism, testified to the fact that he is the Son of God. Jesus, or the, the Father said, This is my Son. Now, can you imagine being in John the Baptist's position? You see Jesus, the Son of God, coming towards you, requesting that you baptize him. I love John's response here of, no, 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 no. It should be you that's baptizing me. You're the Son of God. Today, we think of baptism as representing what? It represents being buried with Christ as we go into the waters. It symbolizes death and then raised to walk in the newness of life with him. It's a symbol that says, I identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for the atonement of my sin, and I now live my life devoted to him. Here's something interesting. Why was John baptizing Jesus before his death? Better yet, why were there baptisms even at all under the Old Covenant? You see, baptism was never meant for the Jews. That's one of the reasons why John was so perplexed when Jesus came to be baptized by him, because Jesus himself was a Jew. Baptism in that day was for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Remember, Jews were circumcised on the eighth day, and they belonged to the covenant family. So who were the Gentiles? Anybody who wasn't a Jew. You and I, I assume most of us in this room, are Gentiles. So prior to Christ's coming, we had no part in the covenant community or in the saving grace of God to the Jewish people. And if we wanted to be a part of that, we had to go through certain rituals, including the ceremonial washing and baptism. This begs a very important question then. Why did Jesus have John baptize him? Not only was Jesus Jewish, but he also had no sin. He had no need of cleansing. He was pure. He was innocent. He was the Son of God. This is what was blowing John's mind and led him to say, Me? Like, how can I baptize you? But this outward ritual of cleansing was ultimately a picture of what God would do inside our hearts. Jesus did not need to be cleansed, but he came through the waters to identify with us to identify with our needing of being washed, as he said, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Jesus does this to identify with us. So in these waters, we see the testimony of the Spirit descending from heaven, the audible voice of God saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. These three testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And this brings us to our third witness, witness number three, the blood, Jesus' crucifixion. The blood of Jesus and the events surrounding his crucifixion testify to the reality that he is the Son of God. Let's turn together to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 and in verse 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So the first thing that we see here is darkness. We see that there was a great darkness over all the land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. And their days, uh, the, the 6 a.m. was considered the first hour of their day. So John is simply saying that from noon until 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. Think about noon. Five minutes from now, even if there's a, a thunderstorm out, there's not complete darkness, right? It's not just overwhelming darkness. But at 3 p.m., from, six, uh, from uh, noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. From the moment that Jesus was first pierced on the cross at noon until the moment when he breathed his last breath, there was this darkness. We also see... Uh, the curtain of the temple. We see that as Jesus breathes his last, as he yielded up his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this curtain was the temple veil. It was what separated the rest of the people from the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelled, where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the chariot throne was. And it was for the safety of God's people because it was, it was to protect sinful man from the holiness of God because his glory was too great for them in their unrighteousness to be in his presence and live. The only person permitted to go into the Holy of Holies was the priest. And the priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice to atone for the people of Israel's sins. So just to give you a little bit of perspective on this curtain, we're not, we're not talking about like a shower curtain. We're not talking about the drapes in your living room. This curtain was 60 feet high. If you're a sports fan, I mean, that's six basketball hoops high. It was 30 feet wide. But get this, it was four feet in width. Like this was a thick, heavy curtain. And the reason was that it was for the safety of the people. It was crafted to be so heavy and thick that no one could accidentally trip or fall into the Holy of Holies and lose their life. It was once reported that it took 300 priests to move it because it was so heavy. Now, I think that that's probably an exaggeration, but it was to get the point across that this was a very heavy curtain. It was too high to reach. It was too thick for a single person or multiple people to tear. But God supernaturally did it as a symbol as Jesus breathed his last. And what was it a symbol of? 
God is supernaturally saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for any who would call on his name. There were no other sacrifices to be made because Jesus made a way for all to come unto the Father. We also see in verse 51, we see the example of the, the earth shaking and the rocks splitting. Nature literally convulsed at the injustice of the sinless Son of God being crucified. Again, God was testifying that this was his Son. We also see that the tombs were open. In verse 52, that's not an everyday occurrence. At Jesus' death, when the final sacrifice was made, when he offered up his blood to atone for the people, the tombs of those who were sleeping, let's say dead people, the tombs of dead people were literally open and people came back to life. And after Jesus' resurrection, these people, it says that they went out into the city. Like people saw these people like, oh, there's Gramps. Like he was, he was dead and now he's not. And lastly, we see the testimony of the centurion in verse 57. Now, a centurion was a commander in the ancient Roman army. The centurion who had just overseen the crucifixion and execution of Jesus feels the earth shake. He sees these rocks split. He sees the darkness that's looming over all these things. He sees the supernatural things that are taking place around him, and he is filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. How incredible is that? 1 John 5, 6 through 8, this is he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. John has made his case. He's presented three exemplary witnesses who all bear witness to the same testimony, who all agree that Jesus is the Son of God come from heaven to take away the sin of the world. And earlier this week, as I was studying, I learned that under the Old Covenant, when a, when a priest was first anointed, he was washed in water to make him clean and then put in new clothes. And then a sacrifice was made to atone for their sin, and the blood was placed upon them to symbolically cover them of their sin. And lastly, they were anointed with oil. And this was an outward symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Washed in the water, covered in the blood, anointed in the Spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, came through the waters of baptism, identifying with our need of cleansing, and shed his own blood on the cross for our atonement, of sin. In the new covenant, Jesus is our high priest. We don't have any need for any of these other guys. He's the true and better priest, and he's the very one who pleads our case. And now in 1 John 5, 9 through 13, we see uh, John's closing remarks as he begins to rest his case. Verse 9 says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So here John says, In the court of law, you readily accept the witness, uh, the, the evidence of two or three witnesses to substantiate a claim. 
Well, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, these three are actually God's testimony to us. These supernatural things that took place, they were God bearing witness that Jesus was, in fact, his son. So if we receive the testimony of fallible men, how could we not receive the testimony of the God of the universe concerning his son, who is perfect in holiness, righteous, goodness, and justice? Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in themselves. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. John is saying that if you believe on the reality of these things, it's because the Spirit is testifying to you in affirming the reality of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. We talked about this a little bit during our first point. Contrastingly, though, he says that whoever does not believe these things, whoever denies these things, makes God out to be a liar because they haven't believed on the testimony that he himself provided along with its overwhelming evidence. In verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony of God, that he gave us eternal life. And this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And it all comes down to this. The entire purpose of this testimony and these three witnesses attesting to the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done is to demonstrate that God has given us eternal life through his son Jesus. And that if we believe on these truths, we can know for certain that we belong to God, that we belong to his kingdom, and that we have eternal life. Contrastingly, whoever does not believe on these things does not have life and remains dead in their transgressions and sin. The testimony is in. The witnesses have spoken. You and I need Jesus. So where do we, where do we go from here? Let me address the unbeliever first, and then I will, I will get to those of us who, who do believe. For the unbeliever, let's remember that Bertrand Russell notion that I started with when he said, if God gave me more evidence, I would have believed. It's an altogether insufficient answer. The problem isn't with the evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. The problem then is the unbelief in your heart because you are still bound to your sin. And God has spoken. If you don't have Jesus, his son, you do not have eternal life. The just penalty for our sin is death and eternal separation from God. And if you haven't yet believed on these truths we've examined today, then you do not have eternal life. If you go out these doors and if you were to get in your car and heaven forbid get in a car crash and die, you would not wake up to heaven. You would not wake up to the presence of God but rather hell and eternal separation. Eternal separation from God. But there is hope, and that's that you can be forgiven. You can receive eternal life. How? Now, I want to make this point very, very clear. You cannot work, will, or earn your way into heaven. You can't eradicate your wrongdoings by doing some good things to try and balance out some scales. There are no scales, 
The text says, whoever believes in the Son has life. We, for, we receive forgiveness for all of our sin, past, present, and future, when we believe in our hearts and when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is the Son of God, come from heaven to take away the sin of the world. And when we do this, get this, God no longer sees your sin. But he sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. He sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. So I plead with you, pray now that the Holy Spirit would give you eyes to see the reality of who Jesus is and of what he has done so that you can be forgiven and so that you can, you can receive eternal life. Now, for the believer, let's end right here in 1 John five thirteen. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. If you believe in this Jesus who came of the water and the blood, you can know with certainty that you have eternal life. I hate blind faith. And fortunately for you and I, God doesn't call us to believe on blind faith. We believe in a vast amount of compelling evidence and testimony from God himself. From the fulfilled prophecies that we briefly examine in Scripture to the historical records and accuracy of Jesus' baptism in his, in his death and his burial and his resurrection to the indwelling Holy Spirit who has taken away our desires for bad things and given us desires to do good things. Are you struggling with sin? You know it's wrong. You hate it. You desire to overcome it, but you continue stumbling. Remember, Jesus calls you to come to him and to lay your burdens down, to find rest for your weary soul, because belief in Jesus leads you to have instant access to God the Father. And he is gracious, and he is full of mercy. You don't need to earn his favor. It's already been bestowed upon you. He has given you eternal life. Jesus swung wide the doors. He tore the curtain. So in the moment of your temptation, in the moment of your falling, get up and run to Jesus. And remember these things, these things that you're struggling with, the sin inside of you. These are conquered foes that Jesus died to liberate you from. He pleads your case. You belong to him, even in our weakness. In our weakness, he is our strength. Romans 8, 1 says that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for any who would believe on Jesus. And lastly, may this be an encouragement to you, believer. God now uses you to bear witness of Jesus to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to anyone else who we may put on your path. And you can now, with confidence and with boldness, because it is the Holy Spirit who empowers you and testifies through your words, as well as opens their eyes and hearts to believe. You can, you can speak in boldness and confidence, knowing that it's not your job to produce the results. The Spirit goes before you. 
The same spirit that opened your eyes to see the truth of this word, the same spirit that led you to believe on Jesus is actively at work in people that you're sharing the gospels. So may this be to us encouragement to be emboldened, to go out and to have more and more gospel conversations. Again, verse 13, these things have been written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We close with me in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you for not calling us to believe with blind faith, but for presenting evidence and giving strong witness from your Holy Spirit that illuminates the words of the Scriptures and testifies to our hearts of the truth to the waters of your, of your baptism and the miraculous things that happened there, to the shedding of your blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin and the miraculous things that happened there. We thank you for this, God. And Lord, I pray that through this, through your word this morning, that we would find rest for our weary souls. That those who don't know Jesus would come to know Jesus. That the, any who are wrestling with the assurance of their salvation, that they would know with certainty that they are yours based on the evidence, based simply on belief in you. And God, I pray that you would embolden us. God, make us bold in bearing testimony to others because your spirit is actively at work in the world around us. Lord, we live and we labor to see your kingdom come to this city. To the see the reality of your rule, uh, your rule and your reign become increasingly visible in our midst. And God, that happens as your word goes out. So God, will we be your witnesses to this city? God, we long to see the day when it's uncommon to walk down the streets of Owasso and not hear everyone speaking of your goodness, to not hear everyone speaking of the eternal life and the hope that they have in you. And God, you have called us to this very task, but you haven't left us alone in it. We thank you for your spirit that bears witness and that testifies. God, I pray that this week would be a great harvest for your kingdom's sake, that many gospel conversations would be had, that many people would come to know you in a saving way, that, that many people would find victory over their sin because you've already defeated it, and that many people would have certainty and assurance that they are yours. God, will you do this in us now? We pray this all in Jesus' name.